Hi everyone, it's Natalie, and I'm back to record my fourth and hopefully final episode. This has been the hardest one to record. Um, I've had to delete it and try again a few times, and I just... Oh, I'm so tired and I'm doing my best, but I, I really want to do this. Um, it's important to me, and there's so much that I want to share, and I'd really like to be able to wrap it up and, and leave you with this with my four-part story and if you've stuck through it um, and you're at the fourth part I thank you so much and it's a bit amazing to me if anyone would want to listen to me so um, if you if you have or if you've sped through it or whatever you've done if you're here listening I so appreciate it and I appreciate you and I send you so much love and whatever you're going through and whatever made you find this podcast I just send so much hope to you and I hope that whatever I share resonates with you and that you feel represented and seen and heard or that you feel educated or more informed or that you um, feel more hopeful. So um, I'm doing my best with it. I, I do talk a lot and I do repeat myself a lot. A lot of that is brain fog, um, just living with this illness and being so sleep deprived. And then some of it is just my personality because I'm a talker, so I cannot blame that on any illness or symptom. But um, it is really hard to just um, get it all out and also just emotionally it's hard to revisit a lot of things so I'm doing my best and I I hope it's okay I hope it's worth listening to and I hope it it helps you in some way because that's the reason we're doing this um, that's the reason this podcast matters so much to us and um, and we really hope that it can help and we really believe in it um, so um, I left off with saying that I have a doctor in California who came highly recommended. He has a lot of experience with ME patients and um, he treated me with incredible compassion and dignity and respect. Um, the one caveat, caveat is um, that he is quite uh, expensive. It is about $600 an hour American for each appointment and there's a surcharge for every 15 minutes you go over. And there's a large charge to be his patient for him to go through your entire medical file and read it. For some people, their medical file is massive, so the charge can be larger. So there are quite a lot of costs. If you have questions about him or you have questions about anything, you can reach out to us at millionsmissingpodcast.gmail.com. So that's millionsmissingpodcast.gmail.com. I don't want to use any doctor's names or give too many specifics just because I haven't been given permission. But if you do reach out to us um, in our own time, because we are both um, Rich, who is the brilliant, wonderful, beloved brainchild of this um, incredible podcast, and or or I or or I will reach out to you and respond. Um, it will take me time because I am quite a severe case and I am bed bound and Rich is, um, Rich is battling and fighting so hard himself. So it will take time for each one of us, one of us to reach out to you, but please feel free to reach out if you have questions. You can also reach out on Twitter at um, Millions Missing Podcast. Um, so um, we hope that we can help and we hope we can answer any questions that you have, but just because I haven't gotten permission, I'm not going to be using names. The only name I was given permission to use was is a doctor who's no longer working, so he wouldn't be able to see patients anyways, and that was Dr. Um, Byron Hyde, who said that I could talk about him anytime I wanted to, and he was 
always had, was an amazing doctor and really cared about his patients and marched to the beat of his own drum and really could care less what people thought. So it was not surprising that he didn't mind me using his name in, in anything. When I said, may I use your name if I'm talking about my case, he said, anytime, no problem. So, um, so anyway, um, back to this doctor in California. Um, he asks for a very long history and as detailed as possible basically from birth, if you think that that's relevant. And I've done that for so many other doctors, but he's the only one that I feel really, really went through it and really paid attention to a lot of details and had a lot to share with me that was very eye-opening, very painful at times to relive, but very, very helpful for me to understand the entirety of my case and how I got to this point of being so sick that I'm confined to my bed. So he was just lovely and has been in every appointment, just a lot of compassion and um, really wants to help in every way he can. He is quite limited for Canadian patients because he cannot prescribe to us, but he can recommend over-the-counter medication, much of which is actually used in conditions that he does diagnose. So there is help that he can provide, but it's up to you if you feel that he's He's a good fit for you. I really just want to tell more so my experience with him. And um, again, as I said, I can answer questions if you reach out to us. So um, my experience has been great and um, I'm grateful for everything he's done for me. Um, so uh, the first thing that he, one of the things that sticks out the most is that in the report that he wrote about me and sent to us very quickly um, from our first appointment, he said that I had one of the most complex and upsetting cases that he had ever come across. And he told me during our our video slash phone appointment, because the video stopped working as technology does, um, that I, he told me that in 20 years of you seeking help, not one single doctor treated you. You never received a single medication. No one helped you. You pleaded and pleaded for help and you got none. He was just utterly appalled by how I was treated and he kept apologizing throughout the appointment, just saying, I'm so sorry if my tone seems curt or seems gruff, but I'm just, I'm so horrified at how you've been treated. And um, he was so taken aback by it, which was very validating, but also was painful because it was reliving it. And it was, it was someone else saying, this is, this is true. What you've gone through is absolute hell. And someone so accomplished it, it really hit me quite hard and it meant a great deal to me. I'm glad he said it, but it was, it was a very intense appointment and it, it, it was a lot to digest. So um, I'll try to be as as concise as I can with explaining everything but my history is as he said so complicated and as I had understood it for the longest time I sort of got sick at 17 and that was when I had my long periods and that that was when my health shifted and changed and there had been maybe some other things in my life and I'd I'd written out my history, but I just didn't really fully realize how relevant and how important so many things were. And there were things that I didn't know that as I wrote my history out for him um, came out when I talked to relatives. So um, basically, I was born in Sweden, but three months later, I moved to Botswana and um, I had several infections and some accidents um, that led um, that basically all together with so many things then going forward in up until the age of 20 sort of created a, a perfect storm or a domino effect if you will that led to me being this sick and then there was of course everything that i've detailed that i went through in my 20s as i worsened 
and in my 30s, and then now to the point of being bed-bound. But my early childhood and my infancy played a much bigger role than I realized, according to this doctor. So um, basically, I had several severe GI illnesses as an infant. And at 20 months old, I had suspected African tick bite fever and suspected meningitis. Um, I spent a lot of time also, this was quite a really relevant point and quite interesting and very tragic, but I played and spent a lot of time with the son of a dear friend of my mother's who was a year younger than me. And my mother recently reached out and reconnected with this friend um, recently, not not that recently, actually about seven years ago, but found out that um, this boy that I played with, who's only a year younger than me and now a grown man, has been sick with very similar symptoms to mine for a very long time. And his father described his condition as not much of a life. He's forced to live at home with his father and be cared for by his father. He's not able to live independently because of how severe his symptoms are. And his symptoms are, as I said, incredibly similar to mine. I won't go into detail just out of respect for his privacy. It, it's his story to tell. Um, if he were ever to tell it. So, um, but I just thought that was incredibly, just far too coincidental and, and incredibly relevant. And so did doc, um, my doctor in California. So on top of that, I had a lot of exposures to possible pathogens because I played in areas that just weren't clean. And later um, blood tests showed that I had had several pathogens, including um, uh, tick fever, uh, not tick fever, um, uh, leptospiriosis, which is a pathogen that comes from water that is, um, um, that has, um, animal waste in it, um, that is contaminated by animal waste. So I played in all kinds of mud puddles and all kinds of things. And I ate gravel and it was not an area where, you know, it, it would have been very easy for me to come across with, um, pathogens and, and that's in no way to, um, I have only the greatest love and admiration for Botswana. It's such a beautiful country. And I was treated with so much love and, and kindness. And, um, it was, it was a time that I'll always cherish looking back at pictures. And I have, I have some vivid memories. There were some hard times, but it was, um, my imagery of Botswana is just so beautiful and that the people were, um, so wonderfully kind and warm. And it was, and we were treated with a lot of love. So um, I say that respectfully, just there's there's um, there's a lack of accessible health care in developing countries. And there, even in a country like Canada, I've been completely failed by the Canadian health care system in a way that's just wholly unacceptable. And um, so in every country, there are problems with the health care system. So there's a lot that can go wrong. And um, when you're in a developing country where there are more things that you can be exposed to. There are much more risks, especially to a young developing person whose little fragile immune system is, is developing. So um, I also had um, parasite, a parasite infection at two and a half years old, then influenza at three years old. And then I had repeated conjunctivitis from three and a half to five years old. Um, as of age four, um, teachers were telling my mother up until I was in junior high that I seemed excessively tired, that I seemed slower in my movements, that it didn't seem to be anything cognitive or, or intellectual, but it seemed that I was sleep deprived. Um, from 
ages three to 10, I had frequent bouts of uh, tonsillitis and bronchitis. And um, from age, uh, at age five and a half, there was an epidemic, an influenza epidemic that was very serious in Austria where hospitals were overflowing and my grandmother and I were extremely sick. And then at age seven, I began having severe GI symptoms that were just chronic. And endoscopy didn't show anything, but that's pretty classic for ME patients. We have a lot of strange things that show up on tests and then a lot of tests that are completely normal when the symptoms are not normal at all. And for me and for, for most people, we just see that anyone that's really knowledgeable about ME or has been an ME patient for any length of time, it's pretty clear that that's just because the diagnostic tools are only where they are at this time in medicine and that, you know, we're constantly improving. MS was considered hysteria until scans were invented so that people could see, um, you know, lesions on the brain and spine. So um, I, I know that I've had GI symptoms um, most of my life and um, that has nothing to do with, um, with uh, that has, uh, that's only about the limitations of medicine now, that it's not been detected as to the exact reason. But um, IBS is still a bit of a mystery, even when um, um, endoscopies show more, you know, unfortunately mine didn't. Um, and I hadn't, I haven't had one repeated. Um, I had one repeated many years later, but it was done incorrectly. So I've never gotten really any clear answers, but I know what I live with. I know the amount of abdominal swelling and abdominal pain and all the IBS symptoms that everyone that you can have, I have. So um, that, that became quite a grievance and difficulty for me in my life at quite a young age. And um, probably from age 10 onwards, I started um, developing food intolerances and more and more digestive problems and was constantly trying to alter my diet. I wasn't trying to be a picky eater. I love food and I love cooking. I, lo I loved it since I was quite young. But I um, I knew, you know, at such a young age still that, that food led to pain and led to swelling and led to um, IBS symptoms, uh, you know, which I didn't know that term then. But um, so I was constantly trying to tweak my diet and see what I could do because I was a really proactive little kid. And, um, you know, like I did things like cut out sugar and um, cut out processed foods. And because I heard adults talking and I, I thought, well, I'll try because I was suffering so much. I was would be curled up in a ball in so much pain. So um, that's always been a major, major symptom for me. And um, then... The next big sort of strike, so there's all these strikes against my immune system. I'm so young and I'm having, you know, infections that could have been fatal from tick fever to meningitis and then all these different, um, different, uh, you know, the different influenzas and, and so forth. So that's a lot for a young immune system to be hit with. It's like one strike after another. If you consider your immune system a wall, my wall was constantly being hit. So it was kind of by a certain point, probably full of holes, if you want to use that analogy. Um, and then um, at age 12, my mother um, had work uh, to do back in West Africa, a four-month contract. She worked with education in developing countries, and I, um, I went with her. And unfortunately, that wasn't necessary, so I was given all these unnecessary fast-tracked adult-dose vaccines 
Um, and unfortunately, looking back, hindsight is twenty twenty. Most of the doctors that I've talked to agreed that it, it probably did cause some damage and wasn't good for me since I had already a vulnerable immune system and had been exposed to so much. So the, the big concern being also that they were adult doses and that they were fast-tracked. And so some of the vaccines that I had were um, yellow fever, typhoid, and one of the biggest concerns that many doctors brought up um, when they saw it in my history was rabies. I was given three rounds of rabies vaccines and they were very close together, I think only a week or two apart. And I was really sick afterwards, um, sick in a way that was very familiar. If I look back to ME, I felt like I had a horrible flu. Um, I was in bed for several days. I was just very, very weak. Um, it just felt like the worst flu you could imagine. My arm was very, very swollen and red where the vaccine was. Um, and I just, I didn't feel right. Just very foggy headed, just very weak. It just very much felt like ME, but just for a short period of time. And then I sort of recovered. Um, it was also found that I had antibodies for hepatitis A. So at some point I came in contact with it, um, which can be fairly common if you have travel in, in different parts of Africa and different countries, but it's still noteworthy. You know, it just still, it's another strike against my immune system. So, um, and then at age 15, I was vaccinated for European tick-borne encephalitis um, due to travel to Austria where I had family. They have a very serious tick-borne encephalitis problem and it's um, even more serious than Lyme disease in the sense that not that Lyme disease isn't incredibly serious, but just that you can die from this. Um, you can die from Lyme disease, but you can die from from tick, European tick-borne encephalitis, and you can, or you can um, end up in a completely vegetative state. It's a, it's a pretty serious, um, it's a, it's very, very serious. So um, I understand why they vaccinated me, but again, another, another strike, another unnecessary thing. So my little developing immune system was just hit and hit and hit. Um, so what Dr. Koff, uh, what Dr. Um, what the doctor said was that um, I had more infections than a hundred people would have had, um, and I had more vaccines than a hundred people would have had. Because if you look at any young Canadian girl, um, they wouldn't have had this many infections, and they wouldn't have had this many vaccines. It just there would be very rare. I'm sh not sure um, how many, but there would be very few cases to compare my case to. So um, he was quite. Um, disturbed by how many infections and how many immunizations I had that he found totally and wholly unnecessary. And neither of us, neither this doctor, nor I or my family, our anti-vaxxers were very pro-vaccines and certainly at this time in the pandemic. But um, just in hindsight, it, it was probably not ideal. And my severe sort of exhaustion really began at age 15 after that uh, tick-borne encephalitis vaccine. It might not be linked, but, um, and I developed some different symptoms. Um, I developed a problem with hives all over my face. Um, that was possibly actually at age 14. Um, I developed problems with getting just constant hives, big, big hives all over my face, all over my chest, sometimes on my arms, um, sometimes on my stomach, not really on my lower body, but um, to the point that I carried around concealer just to cover them up because I was a self-conscious teenager and you're walking around with a big like 
um, quarter-sized hive on your face and um, it's not a doesn't make you feel too great so but it just really stuck out in my memory and and was something that I've struggled with ever since just getting a lot of hives and that's classic of a condition called mast cell activation syndrome with which um, the doctor in California absolutely thinks I have and it's a condition where patients experience repeated anaphylaxis episodes such as hive swelling low uh, blood pressure difficulty breathing and diarrhea and I have almost all of those. I don't have that much difficulty breathing except with coughing, but um, I have hives. I have a lot of swelling problems, especially in the face and um, in the abdomen. And I have very low blood pressure, extremely low. And um, I do have, with my IBS symptoms, of course, diarrhea. So um, it's, um, I, I fit all, all the presentation of having mast cell activation syndrome. So um, the treatment for it is actually um, antihistamines, which a lot of people are treated with antihistamines over the counter, like Benadryl, Claritin sometimes seems more effective, or Reactin, and, um, or prescribed ones like Cetirizine, which I was also on. It didn't have any miraculous effect for me, but um, I still take them from time to time when I have these sort of anaphylaxis episodes. Um, and um, then the next thing that is quite relevant that doctor, that the doctor in California helped me sort of discover or sort of revisit and understand in a greater way was that I had two um, pretty serious head injuries. Um, one was when I was two years old in Africa and I fell off a cliff that was 20 feet. Um, it was in the backyard of friends of my mother. Um, I was being cared for by them. I was staying with them for about a week and um, I fell off the cliff and tumbled down. I was found at the bottom with my eyes black and blue, swollen shut. and um, or that's how I ended up, perhaps it was the next day, but they were swollen shut, black and blue, and um, I couldn't open them at all. Um, for a week, I stayed that way, and I wasn't brought to the hospital. I wasn't, um, I wasn't given any medical examination. So um, I talked to a, a neurologist about this, and he said that that was a classic response to a specific brain or head injury and it's the way that the body protects the brain and all this swelling around the face and the bruising just to keep out any infection and to just protect the brain so um, I should have been investigated and it's it's unfortunate that I wasn't um, but it seemed quite relevant to the neurologist I spoke to and to the doctor in California and then the next accident that I had was when I was 20 I was being driven home by a co-worker um, there was no alcohol involved. It was daytime and I don't drink and neither did my coworker. Um, but my coworker wasn't paying attention and drove into oncoming traffic. I was hit on my passenger side where I was sitting. Um, and I absorbed the majority. So where I was sitting, I absorbed the majority of the crash. My head hit the ceiling of the car very hard. And I remember calling out my head, my head and grabbing my head because there was a, just a flash of intense pain. Um, at the top of my head where my head hit the, the ceiling. Quite obviously, that would be fairly painful. Um, and uh, we waited and waited for the police to come. And the person that, that was hit was very distraught. 
Um, so we, we got sick of waiting and the police station was not that far away. So we actually walked to it. I, in total, I probably walked an hour after an accident like that was, was in hindsight, not a good idea at all, but I was 19. I didn't have any family living in the country to call. I didn't know who to reach out to. So, um, I, um, we explained the entire situation to the police. I told them everything about my head and how it hit the ceiling and how I was in pain. And no one said, you should get checked out, go to the hospital, just get checked out. And I really wish someone had. I'm not trying to lay blame. I, I take responsibility myself. I, I should have known, but I was a young person and, you know, barely into adulthood. And um, and I, um, I uh, just didn't really know. Um, and I wish I had. I did eventually go to the doctor and um, I explained that I was starting to have neuro all these neurological symptoms ever since the car accident. And they were, again, it was completely poo-pooed. And I was told that, you know, you probably just had um, some whiplash and you're walking around and you seem fine. So um, it's probably healed and it's nothing. But I tried to explain that I was having constant tingling um, painful pins and needles and sensations and that I that would come and go and that I had numbness in my arms and legs um, facial swelling that was very intense um, where I would wake up looking like I'd been stung by a bee and um, I looked unrecognizable I would have one eyebrow that would be much lower than the other I would wake up with my right eyebrow much lower than the other and there would always be more swelling in the right side and I, I would tell them that you could draw a line down my body, splitting it in half, and there would be more painful stabbing pins and needles, neuropathic pain sort of sensations on the left side, and then more numbness on the right side. And all of this was just completely dismissed and not listened to at all. So it got frustrating and I ended up, you know, just sort of, I tried to bring it up when I could, but it didn't, it didn't seem to be of any interest to the doctors that I saw. So um, I, I definitely had clear symptoms of neuropathy, but um, nothing was done about it. So what um, the doctor in California, um, and one also thing to add was that uh, when I was probably 14 or 15, I lived in an apartment with my mother and there was a flood in the apartment above us. The tenant had moved out and left the taps running. And I started to smell this musty smell in my in my room and I, I kept looking for it and I found it finally in my closet. I moved all my clothes and there was this massive amount of black mold and um, I cleaned it all myself. Um, I don't know why, I don't know if I was told to or if I did, but um, I didn't wear any kind of protective gear. I had no idea. I just used um, cleaner, uh, some kind of like surface cleaner and um, I didn't even wear gloves and I remember the burning sensation to this day. I can almost feel it when I think about it, the burning sensation down my throat, in my eyes and in my nose and it was quite a lot of blackish green mold just everywhere um, and um, it was sort of tints of black and green and um, mast cell activation syndrome is linked to to mold exposure so um, and around that age, I developed, it was the development of hives and then um, of intolerance to the cold. Um, and that came sort of after 
pretty much right after returning from Africa, but then continued onwards. So that's another thing that was sort of relevant was that I stopped being able to control my sort of have a proper regulation of my body temperature. And it wasn't just a brief sort of um, shock to my system of going from 40 plus degree weather to or minus 40 degree in Canada, which it can get to. But it was really something that's gone on that I still struggle with to this day where I will suddenly get freezing cold and um, my husband will have to, um, I, I can be on the balcony or I can just be laying in bed or it could be when I was better and I was walking, I would get so cold that I have to be brought into the car or into, um, in, into the apartment and covered with blankets, a heater turned on, either a little standing heater or the car heater. And then um, we would either drive by uh, and get a hot beverage or uh, Garrett, my husband, would make me some hot tea. And it would take quite a while for my body to warm up again. It was very painful. I I would actually describe it as painful. And my my fingers would go numb and sort of tingle. And I would just feel like I was going to pass out. So um, all of these symptoms sort of follow just a lot of things happening to my body, just a lot of strikes, a lot of a lot of things that are so interconnected with mast cell and with um, with ME being very linked to viruses and pathogens. So it's it really sort of paints the picture of just how complex and why this doctor said that my history was one of the most complex and upsetting he'd come across. So um, basically what he explained to me was that the belief is that the understanding that they have at this point is that the mast cells are very important cells and when there are repeated infections and viruses and uh, repeated strikes against the immune system the mast cells sort of go haywire and mast cells are essential sort of you know basic cells to our to our construction as human beings they are so important and so when they go haywire that creates inflammation in the body and that inflammation going on for years and years and years as it would have with me then can cause weakening and damage to the spinal cord. And so what doctor this doctor believes I have is something called CCI, craniocervical instability, which is um, detected by MRIs, um, that it can only be detected by MRIs um, that are um, upright MRIs. So, um, it's um it can sometimes be detected sorry to i have to correct that it can sometimes be correct, detected by a supine mri where you're lying just in a in a regular mri machine lying flat but a person can have craniocervical instability and have a completely normal mri so um uh but the best way to detect it is by upright mri um so unfortunately, there are no upright MRIs in all of Canada. There are very few in the entire world. So as a Canadian, it's near impossible for me to get a clear answer now that I'm bedbound. If I was, if I was, if I discovered this when I was younger and was able to travel to uh, the U.S. when I was less severe in my ME, it would be possible. But right now, I would have to be. Um, airlifted, I'd have to travel by um, air evac uh, using a stretcher. So it's just not realistic for me to get for sure a 100% clear answer using an upright MRI. Um, But um, 
just to give a definition and explanation, it's pretty complex. You can read up about it, but craniocervical instability is instability. It's a pathological condition of increased mobility at the craniocervical junction where the brain meets the spine. So, um, and it can be caused by car accidents and it can also be caused by a genetic condition called Ehlers-Danos syndrome. So that syndrome, I don't believe I have because it means that you're hyper flexible. So you can bend your finger. If you, one way to test it is to try to bend one of your fingers on your hand back as far as possible. And, um, and people with this syndrome, their bones are sort of rubbery to sort of explain it that way. And so they can, they can move and have hyper flexibility. And unfortunately that is really not good for the spine and that's what creates the instability so where the brain stem meets the spine that's where the instability can come and and in different um parts of the spine and it, you can even have instability in your lower spine and um this doctor also wanted me to um get an mri of my full spine just because the um acute urinary retention that i had could be linked to that instability as well so it's all pretty complicated and um, what we decided eventually was we just wanted to see in case there was a chance that I had this condition, that I have CCI. Um, this doctor in California is, is really, really quite sure that I do. He said that he'd be shocked if I didn't. I just have all the symptoms and he really believes it's the reason that I'm bed bound and that I can't progress from, from this level and that um, uh, there's different sort of indicators like in almost every picture that you can find of me, my head is tilted to the side from a very young age. So who knows how long this has been going on that I've had instability and it can worsen. And that's possibly what happened when I became bed bound because I kept um, looking up symptoms of TMJ, of, of jaw pain and and um, complaining of pain in my neck and in my in um, and of increased headaches. I was having increased, constant increased migraines. So um, he really believes that it's just, it could be the answer to, to a lot. Um, and, uh, there is surgery for it called spinal fusion, but it is, um, very risky. It is only done by a few neurosurgeons in the world. Um, it can be a fatal surgery like all surgery, but it, it is a very serious surgery. Um, they use metal screws and I unfortunately have osteoporosis on top of everything. I've had it since my thirties and osteopenia since my twenties. Again, something that is not normal and no, for my age and no doctor has been willing to give me osteoporosis medication. And my pharmacist was just shocked by that. She was just so dismayed because there are so many different types of drugs that you can give and some very effective ones. And I'm bed bound now. So my osteoporosis has surly, cer certainly worsened. And unfortunately, that means that I may not be a candidate for spinal fusion surgery because they use metal screws. If my bones are too porous, they won't be able to stay in place. And that that could lead the, the um, entire operation to be disastrous because the screws themselves can be inf become infected. It's pretty serious. There can be a lot of consequences. There is a possibility of paralysis. But the reason people are getting it done is that some people go into basically complete remission and they're back to riding horses and dancing and and um, hiking and doing the things that they used to do before they became so sick with ME and eventually got diagnosed with CCI. So um, 
this doctor also believes that I have a condition called tethered cord, which um, is linked to CCI. And one sort of indicator of it is having a sacral dimple, which is sort of basically somewhere around the top of of your for lack of any polite wording of the crack of your bottom so it's somewhere in there and can be kind of hard to to detect you might need someone else to look for it but you'll see a sort of dimple and I've always had that and I knew right away when I read it oh I have that because I've seen it in the mirror when you're a teenager looking at your body in a bikini and you're wondering if your body looks normal so (laughs) I, I knew that I had it, and so um, it's, a, it's a pretty strong indicator sometimes of tethered cord. So that's another surgery that would be possibly necessary. And both of these surgeries would be very costly. The CCI, the spinal fusion surgery, being absolutely the most expensive, well over 100000 and then all the costs associated with it of travel for me if I'm still, uh, you know, needing an air ambulance and... Um, somewhere to stay because it's certainly not going to be a short um, it wouldn't be a short recovery somewhere to stay possibly in between the time of being examined with an upright MRI and then having the surgery the surgery means being put on opioids that means I can't be on Ativan there's very high risk of fatal overdose then Um, and so it's a pretty serious thing to consider but that's where I'm at at least trying to figure out whether this is even a possibility for me. So because there were so many questions, my husband and I talked about it quite a lot and deliberated and made the decision to have an supine MRI, uh, just a regular cervical spine and brain MRI where you're lying down because that's all there is in Canada and because it can it can detect CCI. The problem is that you can have CCI and have a completely normal brain and cervical spine MRI. So this doctor was very concerned about my my doing this. He warned that I could get much worse, just the ordeal of going to the hospital and that I could crash and that, you know, there's always consequences from going to hospital and especially then during a pandemic. But we just decided that we wanted to see if there were any answers. And it's hard not living with any answers, especially with something that serious. So um, we went to the hosp- went to the hospital. It cost $400 for me to be transported by uh, transport service because the ambulance won't take you. Um, so it's $200 each way. So for all the effort, and I was in so much pain afterwards. I had a migraine for days and days and days, and I had trouble speaking in it. I really did have a bad crash afterwards. But um, for all of that effort and the $400, the MRI was not done correctly, and it was blurry. And I wanted to cry when I found that out. It was just unbelievable. We sent it to the doctor anyway. We informed him that some of the slides or or scans were blurry, but not all of them. And um, so he still passed it on to a neurosurgeon that he's in regular contact with. So we're waiting to find out answers if it showed anything at all, if it was in any way useful, if I have to try to redo it, if they think it would be worth redoing it. And in that case, we'd probably pay to have it redone in a, in a province where you can pay for it. Um, in Quebec, we're, we're right next door to Quebec, so we could, we're in Ontario, so we could pay for it. And then, you know, if they did it incorrectly, they would have to refund us and, and do a new one or just do a new one. So um, if my body could take that. So a lot of questions up in the air, unfortunately, and that's really one of the hardest things is that's where I'm at right now. I'm still completely bedbound. I'm having the benefits of Abilify, 
but I'm still not able to um, get up and walk around my apartment. I can hobble a little bit. I can have my walker. That's very infrequent. It's not something I can count on. It's not a regular improvement like my ability to have the curtains open is something that I can do daily now as long as I've gotten a decent amount of sleep. I can eat more solid foods now. That's a, a regular improvement. I can talk much more. It was much harder for me to talk in the first year when I was at my worst. So um, the improvements on Abilify are still fairly new to me. So I don't, uh, I don't want to count any um, eggs before they've hatched. You know, I can get worse at any time. And at one point, unfortunately, this spring, at exactly the same time, our anniversary, I got a rash from chest to ankles, just like the one that I got right before I became uh, bedbound and and uh, dealt with uh, paralysis from the neck down and trouble swallowing um, solid foods and choking on foods. And it was the exact same rash. It spread the exact same way from the legs up, up the body, and it didn't touch the face. And um, it lasted for several weeks. And um, it was itchy and burning and incredibly painful and didn't respond to hydrocortisone or anything. I reacted more to hydrocortisone than anything. So um, I got sort of a red kind of big splotch where I had put a sort of test amount, so nothing really helped and I just had to wait it out. I didn't sleep well, so I deteriorated and my ability then to hobble a little bit with my walker or take a few steps here and there um, was completely lost and I was back to not being able to really sit up very much and I was in a pretty rough state. Um, I've since recovered um, back to, I hate calling it my baseline because I don't want to believe this is my baseline. I want to believe that I can get back to my baseline where I could walk around my apartment and occasionally leave my home and go on a date night with my husband. It's, it's devastating to think that, that this could be, you know, the final amount of progress, um, being bed bound. It's not something that I can live with long term, but it's not a way that I would want anyone to live. So, um, but if it's up to each individual what they can live with, but for me, it's, it's emotionally, psychologically, physically, just absolutely pure torture and I'm suffering every day and I, I wake up in, in agony and I go to bed in agony and I spend my days in agony and I, I try to keep hopeful and I try to keep laughing and I try to find things to distract myself and crafts that I can do in bed and, um, little cooking experiments, even making a cake from my bedside table with my husband carrying ingredients in and out of the room so I could have some joy of cooking again. And um, so I've been as creative as I can making cards for people and um, making jewelry and from bed and little things that I can occasionally do because I can move my arms quite a lot more. They're, they're the part that's least affected. My legs are, I can move them, but I have more trouble with them. And I have more neuropathic pain in my legs. I have more numbness in my arms at this point, at this stage. So um, I'm, there's been improvement. There's hope. There's love in my life. I have a lot of wonderful people that I have to thank for being so caring and so devoted. And I have a wonderful family on my Twitter. Um, you can reach out to me anytime at welcome words, the at symbol, and then welcome words, no capitals. And my name there is Natalie Robin Justice. And um, you can reach out through the Millions Missing podcast, um, uh, the Twitter account, or 
at million the the um email being millions missing podcast at gmail dot com and um i'd I'd love to hear from you. It will take me time to reply, but I'd love to hear from you and um i've I've gotten a lot of love from a lot of friends and family that um have stayed in my life. I've lost a lot of friends and family, which has been devastating. It's one of the major parts of this illness is losing a support system, losing people that you thought loved you, losing close dear friends and being essentially ghosted and having people just slowly disappear from your life or right away just go into complete radio silence and it's it's all pretty devastating but um you find new people, you find people who understand you, who support you whether they've gone through this illness or not. I have people in my life who've gone through it and I have people that are incredibly healthy and just incredibly compassionate. So I send so much love and gratitude to my family, my uh friends and my found family the the one that I found online and to my dearest um friend Rich who created this podcast who will be a friend for life who I I love like a brother and I just absolutely adore who is an exceptional person and if you have the pleasure at some point of hearing him speak you will definitely be very fortunate um we've talked a lot um leaving messages for each other um to sort of work on this podcast and sharing our stories and our pain and it's been one of the most cathartic and beautiful experiences to get to know someone so incredible so i send all my love and thanks um and admiration to rich for for creating this beautiful podcast i think it's such an incredible idea to have people give people the chance to have their uninterrupted stories just told not people who have been questioned at every turn who have been berated who have been interrogated to be able to tell our stories uninterrupted and just in our own words because our stories have been told as total lies twisted fabricated convoluted lies where where our illness has been painted as a fabrication as um as severe mental illness as um and as all in our head as as an exaggeration for attention and our our stories have not been told truthfully and it's our right and we so much deserve the right to tell our stories from our perspective and we don't deserve to be silenced and i refuse to be silenced and that's the whole point of this po- podcast is for as many people as possible to not have to suffer in silence and if you are unable to um speak uh, you're welcome to um get help writing your story and i would be happy to read it for you I won't go off script. I'll just read it. I won't go on long tangents like I do. And I would do that for you in a heartbeat. It will take me time, but I would I will help you in any way that I can. Um I hope all of you know that. I hope all of you warriors, all of you caregivers, all of the allies, all of the people working to try to find some help and some treatment and possibly someday a cure for this illness. You are all so loved and so appreciated and such utter treasures. Um I can never thank you enough. I can never share my love enough for all of you. Um those of you who are battling this illness, my heart goes out to you so much. Um you never deserved this. You did nothing to deserve this. You did nothing wrong. You are absolutely some of the most incredible people in the world. You're incredible for fighting on when you shouldn't have to. for being so resilient when you shouldn't have to and I know that there's lots of sensitivity around using the word strong or inspiring because we don't want to be used as 
as it's called, inspiration porn for the healthy community, for the able-bodied, but I don't know what adequate words I can use to describe some of the most just incredible people that are still fighting and still kind and still loving and spend their little bit of energy reaching out to fellow ME patients like me and reaching out online just to say, hey, we're listening, we're here for you, we love you. And this helped me, this supplement, this drug, doing this helped me. I see all of you helping each other, helping me. And you're all just such beautiful, beautiful people inside and out. And I have so much love and just respect for you. And I wish that I had a magic wand and I could take everything away from you. I have a magic cat, but unfortunately, I have yet to discover that he has the powers to cure Emmy, he has the powers to heal me and in a lot of ways heal my heart and to give me comfort. But I I can't wave him around and, and take all your suffering away. But I would with all my heart, um, with his absolute consent, of course. And I would cradle him in my arms and say a little spell and we'd all be cured. And I wish that that kind of magic was possible, but it's not. But I think we can make our own sort of magic not to be cheesy with this podcast and with sharing our stories and and telling our stories and refusing to be silenced. Every single one of your stories is valid and needs to be heard if you're comfortable with that. If you're not, we completely understand. But if you want to, please join us. Uh, It can take you as much time as you need. We're here to help you and we're, we're here to let you know how much we love you and believe in you and how much you matter. And I'd like to just share that, um, I just, I, that you matter so much, that your life matters, that you're not just a number that doesn't count as we've all felt and we've all been treated and that way. And you are not alone, even though I wish that I was alone in this and none of you were suffering. You are not alone. Your life matters. Your story matters. You are beloved. You are cherished. You are important. You are needed. And you are still here after everything you've been through. You are still here. And we fight on for all of those who are not still here with us, who who have suffered so much and who didn't get justice in their lifetime. We fight for them and we do this podcast for them and for everyone who's fighting, for everyone who's loving someone who's fighting, for everyone who's trying to help us and be an ally in one way or another. So to all of you, thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And... Um, I just send all my love and hope to all of you and I send hugs to each one of you. If you're a hug person, if you're not, I just send love and appreciation. And um, I'd like to end with a, I'd like to end with a poem that I wrote that I think sort of sums up how I feel about all of this. Um, And I have a lot of hope, but there's also a lot of pain. So we have so much that we're living with the horrific symptoms and suffering of this illness and then the hope that we try to find within each other and within ourselves and then and then all the stigma that we have to fight and the stigmas and the cruelty and the lies and the medical abuse and gaslighting it's just so much and it's too much for any of us but we can we can lean on each other and together I believe we can get through this and together I believe we can make a difference so that there can be real change for our community And that's all we want to do is our little part. I don't think I can change the world. I don't think I can change ME. I don't think I can change 
very much, but I, I think I can help. And I know that my wonderful friend Rich can help. And I know that all of you incredible people can help by listening or sharing this podcast or participating, whatever you're comfortable with doing, we will so appreciate it. So I'll leave on this poem and I'll, I'm sending you all my love, all the love in my heart. And, um, uh, here it goes. So Emmy steals your wheels, punctures your sail, makes you cry and wail, takes big and little things you never knew you'd miss. Stranded, branded, you wait for an energizing kiss, like Snow White from a bed you fight to be free from pain, to live again. That's what I want for all of us. I want us to live again. This isn't a life for so many of us. We feel that it is exactly what is called a living death and we deserve to live again. We deserve to live for all the years that have been taken from us. And in all that we've lost and all that has been taken, all that has been stolen, all that has been, all the ways that we've been failed, um, we have gained so much because what we, we've gained is each other. We've gained a family. And I know that that doesn't make up for all that's been taken from us and all that has been stolen. But I've gained incredible people like you. And for that, I will be internally grateful. I've gained an incredible brother from another mother, my twin Rich, who who started the this podcast and it was his idea and I'm so grateful to him to be able to participate because I've been wanting to do a podcast for so long but I I do not have the strength and the ability to do the technical side of things so I couldn't be more grateful and I couldn't be more hopeful that this will this will be powerful and and I hope that I'm kicking off something and you'll you'll be recording even more powerful much more powerful messages than my long-winded one but I hope mine kicks off some hope and some some inspiration and and I hope it resonates with you and um I want to say that to all those who have hurt us you'll never know the depth of pain that you caused us you'll never know you'll never know how much you hurt us we were suffering and you added to our suffering we were in pain and you compounded our pain we were failed and you failed us over and over again. You'll never know how much you hurt us. And I hope you never know because I wouldn't wish this suffering, this, this debilitating torture on anyone in the world. But I choose to forgive. I choose to forgive myself. I choose to forgive myself for believing every single doctor, every single medical professional, every single friend and family member that, that doesn't deserve that word who told me in no uncertain terms and made it clear to me that I was defective, that I was lazy, that I wasn't trying hard enough, that I was just faulty, that I wasn't good at life, that I didn't have a strong work ethic, that I just wasn't, wasn't enough just as I was, that I was inventing and fabricating all of this for attention, that I would torpedo my own life and hurt the love of my life and all the people around me that loved me and waste the time of, of, of the medical system and that I would cause this much turmoil for those who love me and for myself, that I would be that disturbed to really, really think about what you're insinuating when you suggest that of someone. And it's a very small percentage of people that fake things, that fake rapes, that fake illnesses. And you're hurting this vast majority, this 90 plus percent of people who are, when they say we need help, we are hurting, please believe us. 
that's that's all they need. And this mistake has been repeated throughout history. It has nothing to do with Emmy or you. It has to do with humanity and our failure of victims because it's been repeated with racism, with homophobia, with every every with anti-Semitism, with every ism, with every form of hatred, with every time that we've failed groups, that we've discriminated against them, that we've hurt them, that we've hurt victims when they're already hurting. And it has to stop. Enough is enough. And I will no longer tolerate a single person treating me that way again. And if I see anyone treating any of my beloved fellow warriors or anyone that way, that's what I use my Twitter for is to stand up to any kind of abuse because that it is abuse and it is absolutely unacceptable and intolerable cruelty and it is not forgivable. And, and I choose in my own way, in my own time, I will hope that I can find forgiveness so that I don't carry the burden of other people's mistakes, but I'm not there yet. I'm only at the point of forgiving myself for believing the horrible lies that were told about me and the horrible damage that was done to me and countless other people like me. But I cannot forgive yet the pain that you caused my fellow human beings who I love with all my heart, you've hurt them so deeply. And if it was just me, if it was just me that was suffering, that would be one thing. But you have hurt countless beautiful, incredible people, halted their lives and cut their legs out from under them. You did not create this virus. I accept that we live in a world with viruses and natural disasters. I've always accepted that. What I cannot accept is human cruelty, abuse, neglect, a dismissal, an absolute failure of vows and oaths that you've taken and first do no harm and you have done endless harm. And I'm speaking to the doctors who have done harm. I'm not speaking to the wonderful ones. So for the wonderful ones who care, this is not a speech for you. So please allow us to, to vent our pain because we have every right to after everything that we've been through. So I say that because it needs to be said. And I've wanted to say it for a very long time. And I have a lot more to say. Maybe someday I'll record some more messages, but it's it's other people's turn now. I've told my story and it's up to other people. Um, if, if any of you are willing or ready or able, I would love to pass the torch and I'd love you to share your story with absolutely no pressure, no pressure whatsoever. I only think that it will be powerful and that you deserve it. You deserve to speak your truth and we will be here to listen to you and help you in whatever way that we can. And I will end on saying this one thing. There is only one of you in all the world. Only one of you. You are completely unique. Your story thus is completely unique and so needed and so important, just as you are so needed and so important. And because there's only one of you in this entire world, that makes you an absolutely priceless treasure. You are so worthy. You are so loved. You are so needed. You are so special. The world is better because you are a part of it. And I see all the beautiful ways that you fight and all the beautiful ways that you help each other fight and the incredible things that you write and share online, the videos, the messages, everything, the pictures, the art. You're incredible, absolutely incredible. And you're still here. And that is utterly remarkable. And I send all my love to you. And I send my love to all those who have left, who we wish were still here. We fight in their honor. And please just know just how much you are loved and how much you are an absolutely one of a kind treasure. 
You are true treasures. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for helping me get this all off my chest. It's been painful, beautiful, cathartic, and exhausting, but wonderful. And I thank you so much if you've listened to even a little bit of it. Thank you with all my heart. Take care of yourselves and know just how much you matter and how much you are loved.